Well, if you would with me, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's not often, although it does occasionally happen, it does not often happen that we teach about the Lord's Supper when we don't observe the Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing tonight. In fact, this is really the earliest picture we have of a church observing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And instead of finding a wonderful event in unity with great meaning applied, we find a mess. You see, we tend in this day and age to lose the sense of the Lord's Supper being a meal. In fact, we offer such small portions in the meal, it's just a taste that we receive. But the Corinthians were much the opposite. They were losing the meaning, focusing on the meal. And in the meal, they were observing it in such a way that it became a great problem. In any case, how is it, as we read this passage, that the Lord's Supper brings communion of the saints with the Lord? Follow along as I read these familiar words, but also important words from the Apostle Paul, beginning at verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. As we consider these words, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, grant us wisdom from your word. Grant us an understanding of the meaning of the Lord's Supper tonight. Father, remind us of the promises contained therein. 
and of the serious nature of this sacrament. Lord, I also pray that any of the words, either this morning or this evening, that were spoken that were not consistent with your own would, be pass, would pass away and never be heard from again. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I like to be a problem solver. In fact, when Jennifer and I talk together at night sometimes, and I find out that she's had a particular problem at work, whether it's a problem with a person, a problem with a student or a parent or a faculty member, or a problem of some kind of equipment at the, at the uh, school building, because of course we all know technology works all the time, Whatever it is, is that problem. When she tells me this problem, there's a part of me that wants to jump up and solve it right at that moment. Now, I have to understand that sometimes when we tell each other the things that are going on at work or in our lives, we're not necessarily seeking a problem solver. We're seeking an ear to hear what's going on in our lives and just to share our lives with one another. Well, in this case, there is a problem. There's a problem in the Corinthian church. There are those who evidently brought to the Apostle Paul a report about how they were coming together and celebrating the Lord's Supper. Evidently, the ones who came were those who were relatively poor on the socioeconomic scale because they were complaining about those that would, in essence, uh, come and observe this supper in such a way that those who were poor or hungry could not participate in the same way. And it was a problem. And Paul, not because he was a problem solver, but because he had been given revelation from the Lord, is able to address that problem with the power of the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write these words. So tonight we're going to look at several sections here, three of them. You'll notice in your bulletin the outline actually bleeds over onto the back. But we're going to look at the problem briefly We're going to look at the solution that he gives, and then we're going to look at the warning that's attached as an addendum to the end of this section of Scripture. Now, of course, we could turn to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of whom give us the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. Paul, of course, was not amongst those disciples who did that. And yet, by God's grace, he received this revelation, apparently not just as tradition handed down, but it appears to be direct revelation from the Lord with the words that were given regarding the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was meant to be a wonderful time of remembering the importance of the atonement, that is, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But in Corinth, it became a problem because that meaning was being lost. Notice what he had said here. Although earlier in the chapter, in verse 2, they were being commended for what they did in one area, here in this area he says, I cannot commend you. Because he says the problem is so severe that when they get together, it's not encouraging, it's not building up, you're actually making matters worse for the church. The first thing he says about it is, in verse 18, it's kind of interesting, he says, for in the first place, although he never does say in the second place or finally or anything like that, but evidently the first rank of importance is there were divisions. Now this is nothing new. 
This was one of the main problems in Corinth. Way back in chapter 1, Paul mentioned how they had divisions. One of them followed Peter, another followed Paul, another followed Apollos. Others said, we're the party of Christ, and they evidently couldn't get along with each other. And so this was nothing new that there would be divisions here. But these divisions, described in connection with the Lord's Supper, were not divisions based on who they followed. They were basically two different categories of newly discussed divisions. One is spiritual divisions. He says here, I believe it in part, in other words, he thinks perhaps some amongst him uh, that gave this report may have been exaggerating just a little, but there was some truth and validity to them. He says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, what is he talking about? How can you determine whether or not someone is genuine? Well, he says, basically, there are spiritual divisions. On the one hand, he hates the fact that there are divisions. They shouldn't be divided. They should all be one. But it's interesting. This is a very difficult verse because it says there must be or it is necessary that there would be the divisions among you. In other words, he's recognizing that in the church, there are both believers and unbelievers, Sometimes we call the distinction of the the church that you see visible. When we see the visible church, we see all of those who have made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. The problem is we don't know their hearts. You can make that particular profession and not really believe it in your heart and see those changes in your life as a result of faith. And so he recognizes that in the visible church, there is within that body what we call the invisible church. That is, those who are genuinely believers in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He says it is necessary that there would be this division. There are those who truly believe and there are those who only profess to believe. We also understand that this division also comes to the point where there are those who would handle things properly then in the Lord's Supper, those things that are dedicated to the Lord for the meaning and the uplifting and building of the church, and those who would not. So there are spiritual divisions. But perhaps even worse are the next divisions. He talks about the circumstances. They're coming together to eat this supper, and of course, in those Days in that context in the ancient world, there were many feasts that people would celebrate together. Sometimes they did this with idols in other contexts. There were pagan feasts of different sorts. And often in those pagan feasts, it could be wild and of great difficulty. And here he says, when they came together, there were those who went hungry, there were those who went drunk, There were those who would start without others present. And of course, he exclaims here, what is going on? You see, these divisions are not spiritual divisions. They're socioeconomic divisions. It seems to be as if those who were wealthy and prosperous, probably providing the most food and resources in those meals, because these were full-blown meals, They wouldn't wait for the workers or the slaves to come to participate in the meal. They'd just start whenever they felt it was necessary. 
And so they would imbibe in this food so that some that came later would not get enough to even satisfy their hunger. And it was there in this context that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. These divisions became a problem. And so thus, these meals, as you can imagine, became unruly. I mean, think about it. Think if in your church, you get together for a meal, and some people start before everybody else gets there. Some of them are getting drunk. Others, in their gluttony, are imbibing in such a manner that there's not enough food for everybody else. You see, he says here, this is not the Lord's Supper. This is not what it's about. Not just because, hey, you should focus on the meaning instead of the food, but, but they're, they're basically trying to, to discourage the people from being united together and seeing that in Christ there is no poor or rich. There are no divisions. So it's a selfish supper. And of course, in this, it also encourages sin. You know, the whole point of the Lord's Supper is to remind us that our sin is forgiven in Christ. And yet they were coming together in such a way that the suppers they were having together were encouraging the sin of gluttony, the sin of drunkenness, and even the sin of favoritism. And this destroyed the communion of the church. In fact, here are the words, Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, perhaps you follow the news like I do. I love to follow some of the government things and politics and all those kinds of things. It's a hobby. It's not something that I put place my hope in or anything like this. And you knew that this last week there was a a division in the House. They could not decide who the next speaker would be. And, of course, you can go through all the ideas of why Republicans should or should not have elected the speaker that they did or should or should not have sought the concessions they did and the rules of the House and all those things. But the underlying problem is this. There is a party spirit. In fact, no members of one party would ever consider voting for the members of the other party. The fact that one party would not vote for someone in the other party to lead their house shows that it is a house divided. And unity is not even expected. In fact, we're not interested in placing the needs of our country first as much as the needs of a party spirit. And so this is what is being addressed here. There was a party spirit On the one hand, in the early parts of 1 Corinthians, there was a party spirit as far as who they're going to follow, this party or that party or that party. But here in this context, it's a reminder that when they were coming together, it was a division between the rich and the poor, between those who wanted to imbibe and those who just happened to come late. Some were truly believers and some were not. That was the problem. So what's Paul going to do about it? Of course, Paul's not there at the church physically. He's writing a letter to them inspired by the Holy Spirit to address, in part, this particular problem. So he says to them, here's the solution. Let me give you the historical instructions. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. First of all, these are historical instructions. In fact, they're quite literally historical because now we have four different authors who agree that this event took place and even though some of the details are just a little different as you would expect from four different viewpoints yet all of them describe the same event with many of the exact same words but these are not just historical instructions they are divine instructions he received them from the Lord Jesus Christ Amazing. He's reminding them the solution is go back to the basics. Go back to understand this is what Jesus wanted us to do. And so there he says what Jesus did in instituting this sacrament. First of all, they gave thanks for the bread. You might have heard perhaps sometimes the word Eucharist in reference to the Lord's Supper. That is because the word for giving thanks in Greek is the word Eucharisteo. That is, it is the word to give thanks. And here in this passage and also in Luke's account, they use this word to give thanks. Matthew and Mark use the word bless. And often when they were coming together and giving thanks to the Lord, then they would use the words, bless, O Lord, whatever it is they were doing. And so here it is, very basic, very simple. Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks like we're supposed to do, and he broke it. That is, that kind of bread was not made in slices like our normal bread that we use today. It was often in small, flat, round cakes, perhaps. And so he would break those. They would be unleavened because it was during the Passover celebration. They had not risen, so they were flat. And he would rip those or break them and, in essence, divide them amongst the people. As he did that, what did he do? He taught about it. Here's what he said. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He taught, first of all, that this, bu- this uh, bread somehow or other was to represent his body. And when he says this, he says, it is for you. That is, those who believe in him. And then what did he do? He says, do this in remembrance of me. He commanded its repetition. We're supposed to do this more than once. We're supposed to do this, as we find out later, often, whatever that means. And so here he is, giving these divine instructions. Then what happens next? giving thanks again. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In the same way, so he gives thanks, and then what does he do? He teaches about it. He taught about what it meant. First of all, he says, this is the new covenant. Now, those words would have pricked up the ears of Old Testament people familiar with the Old Testament. This is in reference particularly to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, 
when you read those words, Jeremiah's prophesying about this new covenant. They had the old covenant, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Moses and David and the rest. But here was the new covenant where God would place within his people a new heart. Not only that, but it was confirmed by the fact that he would remember their sins no more. So this new covenant was the initiatory right or the the, the right to understand what the new covenant meant. That it was in great detail with this blood, this cup that's being offered was to remind them that in Christ their sins were forgiven. In Christ they now had a new heart. In Christ they had new life. And then he said, it is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. He says here, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We see in the other combined sources of the institution of the Lord's Supper that this is for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the scriptures say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then, of course, he commands its repetition, just like what he did with the bread. And you've seen it. If you've been in a church long enough, you've seen the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and you've done this. And yet, if it becomes a repetition, if it becomes a rite or just something you do because you've done it before, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what do you do? This is the meaning. He gave it its timeless meaning here. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a proclamation of Jesus' death, his atoning death on the cross, the central aspect of the gospel. What all history had been pointing to, all of the, excuse me, all of the promises of the Old Testament that a Messiah would come would be that, that this would take place, that the central moment of history that Jesus, the Son of God, would be willing to give his life on the cross for his people. And you proclaim that death every time you celebrate the Lord's Supper. You do that until Jesus comes back. This last July 4th, there was a parade in Highland Park, Illinois, to celebrate the founding of our country. Every year, this would have been a tradition for that community. They would have a big parade, and people would see perhaps the fire trucks and some of the other things go down the road. There were banners, there were signs, there were people milling about and all those things. And then a shooter came and began killing some of the people in the parade. What was a celebration of the country became a reminder of death so that now when they celebrate July 4th in 2023, it will not be so much for them a reminder of the founding of our country as it is a reminder of death in their community. Yet even when they celebrate that event, perhaps they had forgotten as they celebrate with fanfare and they celebrate with all the red, white, and blue and the anthems and all the things that take place in a great July 4th celebration, fireworks and all those things, how did the founding of our country become possible? By blood shed. 
You see, those celebrations should always be a reminder that it took the sacrifice of others to found this country. And yet the meaning has so often been forgotten. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, yes, it's a wonderful celebration. Yes, we do it in unity and communion with one another. But the focus is always on Christ's death because it's paramount to our salvation. Without the atonement, we'd have no hope. Without the shedding of blood, our sins would still be upon us. Without Christ's willingness to submit himself even to death on a cross, we would still be cursed. And yet here in this supper is a reminder in a different way than just hearing the words, but to sit down together as the people of God to recognize the meaning of what this is, that Jesus died for us. But even if we do it properly as a church, there is still a warning for the individual. Paul doesn't stop there. He says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Even if the church does everything right, they wait and eat together, they celebrate together in unity, They display the meaning of the Lord's Supper that we're proclaiming his death until his return and all things come to a close. No matter what has happened, there there is still the opportunity of individuals within that celebration to participate in an unworthy manner, and it brings serious guilt. The Lord's Supper is not a magical thing. It's not a magical thing in that somehow or other that, unlike any other event that we would do in the church, would be magical in such a way that there is more sin and guilt upon this than anything else. And yet we understand that there is guilt for those who would participate unworthily. What does that mean, to participate unworthily? Well, verse 28 tells us how to participate worthily. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. A worthy participant, to be one, requires discernment. It's kind of an interesting word to examine yourself, to be able to discern this body. Verse 29, whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It requires discernment about ourselves and discernment about the body. What does it mean to discern? The Greek word here means, in essence, to differentiate or to be able to distinguish between. In other words, to be ignorant of the atoning death of the cross and its meaning is to be not discerning that body. To to be in such a state that we can't understand what salvation is or we don't know if we are saved, that's a lack of discernment. If we are unable to examine or test ourselves to see if we truly understand and believe in the gospel, then we will be an unworthy participant. And what does that do? What does it do when we're an unworthy participant? He says they eat and drink judgment on themselves, verse 29. An unworthy participation brings, first of all, self-judgment. 
This is serious. We talk about the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and it is a celebration. And yet there is a serious nature in that, that if we partake unworthily, we don't understand the gospel, or we don't believe the gospel, or we refuse to repent of our sin knowingly, those things, it brings judgment. It also brings real and physical effects that may be observed. It sounds scary, doesn't it? That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul is saying for those of you in Corinth, some of you, your physical illness may be traced back to your unworthy participation in the Lord's Supper. That sounds very magical and trying and and awful. And yet here it is, there is a serious nature of obeying the Lord in this particular command. True self-discernment avoids God's judgment says but if we judged ourselves or discerned ourselves truly we would not be judged you know it's hard for people to determine whether or not someone else has belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that's one of the hardest things that elders do in all of their understanding and all of their wisdom it's a great joy to to come together with new prospective members to the church and hear God's testimony in their lives it's a great joy but at the same time there's a great seriousness Because the scriptures tell us we're given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And it's our job to determine to the best of our ability if someone truly believes and understands the gospel. We can't do it. Apart from the spirit and wisdom of God. And even then we fail and we fall. How important is it then that we reflect upon our own faith when we come to the Lord's Supper. Lest we be judged. Finally, God's judgment is for discipline. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, some people think that as you come and celebrate the Lord's Supper or do things as a church, all the things in the church, once you're saved, everything is wonderful. And yet we're reminded that the scripture is used not only to train us, but to rebuke us and to correct us. And sometimes being weak or ill or seeing the death of others is a form of discipline because God loves his people. When you think of the Lord's Supper and people falling ill or dying, I'm reminded of the time of the Reformation. From 1517 until 1700, there was one statistical analysis based on population growth and taking into consideration historical events that suggested that the Roman Catholic Church during that time period may have persecuted or killed 50 million people. Did you know that a good number of those were killed because of their desire to take properly of the Lord's Supper? One of the great themes of the Reformation was not only that we would go back to the Bible and that everyone would hear the word of God, but it was also to properly observe the Lord's sacrament because the church had withheld the elements from the people, particularly the cup. And rather than letting them participate in these things, it was only for the clergy. And so there was a sense in which they were doing the very things happening in Corinth where some would imbibe and some would not get any. And so there were many who fought wars for the opportunity to observe the Lord's Supper correctly in their own church. That is why 
Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But the good news is that God's judgment is for discipline so that we would not be condemned with the world. God loves the church with all its wrinkles, with all its spots. He wants the church presented without blame and without any sin. And so Paul gives a very wise recommendation. My brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. When you come through all that, you think, Paul, why didn't you just say that to begin with? You know, he's going, he, he said at the very beginning, here's the problem. You all are, are just not waiting for each other. Some go hungry, some imbibe. There's gluttony, there's favoritism going on. There's the meaning that's being destroyed by what you're doing. Rather than just saying up front, instead of what you're doing, wait, this is such an important thing. He wanted to remind them of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And he wanted to remind them of the central event of all of history, the atonement on the cross. And he says to them, make preparations to avoid any problems with self-examination, with unity, to wait for one another because the Lord's Supper is important. It's even described the proper institution of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, is a mark of a faithful church. The Corinthian church was such a mess But as individuals also, we can be a mess if we display ignorance of the atonement or despise the reminder of God's grace. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Yes, it's to strengthen us and to give us zeal to face the life that is to come, all the details of a messy life and a world of sin. But it's all based upon the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, the unity in the supper is not about our goodness or our righteousness. The unity of the supper is not about our church being a church that's either good or better than any other church. The unity of the supper is in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of his people. And in him, together, no matter our background, no matter our socioeconomic status, No matter who we are and where we come from, if we believe in Jesus Christ and have participated spiritually, feeding upon the body and drinking upon the blood of Christ, then we have life forever. Amen. Father, remind us of these things as we gather together, that in you we have life. In your body given for us, in your blood shed for us, we have the forgiveness of sins. We have the joining together with the body, and we have life everlasting. We thank you for these words. We thank you even for the problem in Corinth that displays to us a reminder of this meaning, that your spirit might work in and through us to both be self-discerning and to, as a church, properly observe this sacrament about Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.